the Doxed, the podcast. They're all black people. Shocker. All black people that have died due to weaponized police welfare checks because i think there's there's a common theme of police all over the country approaching welfare checks on white people much differently than approaching welfare checks on black people before they even lock eyes on a person of color they're approaching the situation with just a completely different mindset than approaching a white person and it has ended in the death of a lot of black people i also meant to find stories of just autistic people mm. being victims of weaponized welfare checks too and i know they're out there i just need to dig but the first on the list is um kenneth chamberlain he was a 68 year old marine that was fatally shot by police in his home police were conducting a welfare check on him because his um like life alert device he's an older man he had a life alert it was accidentally triggered yeah and he told the police officers he did not need help. He asked them to leave. Um, I'm sure as an older man living alone, like I'm sure it was agitating to have police show up and disrupt your day like that. Nothing was going on. It was just a device that was accidentally triggered. He didn't need help with anything. He asked them to leave. And instead of leaving, they escalated the they situation and then broke down his door tased him and shot him multiple times all because his life alert device was accidentally triggered why didn't they believe him when he said it was an accident i don't need your help please leave yeah plus, why wasn't that enough plus he he's a 68 year old man then you also have several other people listed here who are elderly there's mm -hmm. James Howard Allen, a 74-year-old, also a vet, Douglas Harris, 77-year-old man. That was mm -hmm. in 2019. I mean, and then there's uh there's other cases as well, but why are there three cases on here of old elderly people? Mm -hmm. How could they possibly present a threat to the police? Multiple police, by the way. It's not like one cop shows up for a welfare check. You're telling me these old men had you in fear for your life or you needed to shoot them, not just tase them, shoot them dead, shoot them multiple times. Yeah. And all all three of them were inside of their own homes when they were shot mm -hmm. in their own homes. They were not like out on the street pre presenting some kind of public issue. They were literally in their homes. I think that. Kenneth Chamberlain's story sticks out to me the most because there was just no reason. There was no reason that his life needed to be taken. Yeah. No one picked up the phone to call the police. He didn't pick up the phone to call the police. No one was worried about him. He had a device meant to help him when he was in need, but it was accidentally triggered. Mm -hmm. And the cops escalated that to the point where... His family doesn't have him anymore. He took his last breath because police felt like playing God that day. Uh, with James Howard Allen, it, it was a senseless death too, but um, I guess he was behaving erratically, fired a gun inside his home. So it makes sense that someone would call 
to have him checked on, but if he was behaving erratically, he needed care. Mm-hmm. He needed help. He didn't need to be shot. Yeah, well, that's a lot also that I'm sure applies to many cases of autistic or otherwise mentally ill people who need different kinds of care and might be seen as a threat just because they're presenting outside of like societal norms. Mm-hmm. But that often I think can just be another way to reinforce arbitrary norms. Being having, you know, sudden movements does not mean that you're a dangerous. Mm-hmm. And police are just not trained or prepared to deal with to deal with that at all. Or at least they weren't. In my experience, they haven't been. I would hope that I would hope that there's training programs implemented, but I mean, some of these are more recent. 2018, Travis Jordan, a 38-year-old or 36-year-old black man was shot and killed in Minneapolis in 2018. They're all trying to, in all these cases, they're like using tasers and tear gas, and then they fire guns. Witnesses of that scene claim that he was not holding a knife and officers escalated unnecessarily. Minneapolis mm. settled a lawsuit with Jordan's family for $4.5 million. But that happened in 2018. And uh, there's another one on here. 2015 was James Howard Allen. 29, uh, Douglas Harris, 2019. So recent. pretty recent. Yeah. And then it looks like there's also, you had one case on here, Atatiana Jefferson, who was. Yeah, Atatiana, that was a huge news story. Yeah. Huge. Um, so she's 28. And she was shot and killed again in her own home. She was playing video games with her nephew and her front door was open and her neighbors decided to call a a welfare check on her because her front door was open. But she was just in the house playing video games with her nephew. Why did that end up in cops firing through her window within seconds of showing up? God only knows. God only knows. A neighbor says, I'm looking out my window and my neighbor's front door is open and that's odd. Let's let's do a welfare check. We have some cops just check in on her and make sure she's okay. And a cop shows up and immediately fires through the window. What? Yeah. And I don't even know how to explain that beyond just like systemic inability to deal with anything like that. I mean, maybe there was some kind of thing like maybe they knew something personally about that and, and had some kind of vendetta I feel like I don't want to talk out my ass, but I remember with uh, Brianna Taylor reading that there might have been some kind of like personal connection that led to some in- extra intention that made that kind of make sense why she would have been ta- they would have been targeted. In this case, who knows? It could have just been completely random, but that's almost worse because it's just like the whole system is designed to kill people, <laughs> to kill black Specifically people. Specifically black people. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's no better explanation for why that would ever have happened. Yeah. For just complete incompetence or just bad design of the entire system. It's just, it's so hard to read stories like this and then know that there's these fucking trolls out here latched onto us that could, or I could be one of these, I could be the next hashtag because of these people, because they're just playing a game on the internet and just have decided to not like me and just want to play with my life like this. Yeah. It's not an exaggeration. It's not a delusion. It's real. Yeah. We have a handful of stories in our notes 
on this episode, but there are hundreds of stories like this. Hundreds. There was a whole summer. I want to say it was in 2015. Back when I was still on Facebook, it was like every other week there was a new hashtag of another black person shot by police for no reason. And to scroll through my Facebook feed at the time and see graphic video footage of violence on black bodies, video footage of bullets hitting black bodies and they're hitting the ground and they're taking their last breaths to see video footage of a police officer's knee on George Floyd's neck and watch him cry out for his mom and watch him take his last breaths. Like, I don't know if people can grasp the trauma of constantly seeing your likeness being murdered every other day. To scroll through social media, to scroll through TikTok, and you see a funny video, you see a couple dance videos, and then you see a Black person dying. Does anyone else, does any other race have that experience on social media just every day scrolling through their feed? I mean, of course not. And I do think that it it came, it obviously got more visible once everybody was filming everything. And so that, of course, means that it was always happening. And it's just that it feels like something fresh because it's just we can see it happening because everybody captures everything with video now i was in denver a couple years ago and for the first time in a really long time i had gotten pulled over when i was living in texas i feel like i got pulled over every other day i got pulled over all the time in texas sometimes even for no reason for taillights that were out that weren't out for Oh, it looked like you didn't have your seatbelt on. Like I got pulled over. Like, it was in the t- it was in the dozens of times I got pulled over. So when I moved to Colorado, it didn't happen as much. Like I went a few years without ever being stopped. And then I was pulled over on my way home from my salon. And it was kind of like dusk time. It was kind of twilighty outside. It wasn't quite dark, but it was dark enough where I could see the the lights like the the red white and blue cop lights Mm -hmm. and it just felt like oh my god just that sinking feeling of seeing those lights behind me what they just feel like the brightest lights you've ever seen and the way my hands started trembling and my heart just started pounding boom, boom 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 and the first thing I did was reach for my phone my hands were shaking so bad I could barely I could barely open my phone. And the first thing I did was text my boyfriend at the time. I just got pulled over. I'm at the corner of blah, blah, blah and whatever. If I don't text you back in a few minutes, please come. And I, all this is like, I'm, I'm texting. I'm starting to sob. I can't stop my hands from shaking. I'm like trying to catch my breath. Oh, that was the worst feeling in the world. And I was, I think I was going like a couple miles over the speed limiters? I don't even know. I don't even remember what I got pulled over for. Either I was speeding, but it was in town. So like I was going through an intersect. I don't know if I like rolled past a stop sign or was going too fast. I don't even remember. I, I blacked out. 
I, I don't even think I got a ticket, but the fear that I had, like, this may be, this could be my last day on earth. And I don't even know why. I don't even know what I did. This cop can just decide to take my life because just because of the color of my skin. And that sounds so dramatic. And I'm sure people will hear this and be like, oh, my God, she's pulling the race car. She's being so dramatic. But it's a real fear. Yeah, because it really happens. You see it really happen in front of your face all the time. The first police brutality story that caught my attention, and I know it's not the first ever. I mean, this is pretty late in the game, but it was that one summer, that one year where it was like constant, constant black people being killed left and right due to police brutality. But the first hashtag I remember is Philando Castile mm. because there was video of the whole thing from start to finish. Philando Castile, I believe, was in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he was in the car with his girlfriend and their little daughter, who I believe was four years old, in the back seat. And I don't know what they got pulled over for, but the cop approaches the driver's side and asks for his uh, license and registration. And I believe he pulled out his license and his concealed and carry permit. Yeah. And the police officer asked him, do you have your firearm in the vehicle? And he responded, yes, because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to let them know I have my firearm in the car. Mm -hmm. Cop immediately shot him in the chest twice. Well, they uh, I think that there was a little bit of back and forth where the cop was like, he was like, don't reach for it. And Castillo was like, I'm I was going to. And then, yeah. And then he was like, don't pull it out. And he's like, I'm not I I'm not going to pull it out. And then uh, then they he was like going back and forth with the cop where the cop was saying, like, don't pull it out. And he was like, I'm not going to. And then he shot him, which is just I don't even know. I can't even fathom where that comes from psychologically on the part of the cop. Like, it's got to be a kind of fear, but it's like a fear that's totally unfounded in the actual danger of the situation. Yeah. And it's based in racism and it's based in, I guess, I think it has to be the way that entire job teaches you to think about the people that you're supposed to be helping as others i think mm -hmm. that's super dangerous obviously that cop was was not even able to hear that he wasn't going to pull it out because he was what and never mind that his girlfriend was in the passenger seat and his baby daughter four years old a toddler was in the back seat yeah she watched her father bleed out in front of her watching her mom absolutely absolutely panic and what really got to me was they arrested um the girlfriend i, think, I believe her name was diamond i'm gonna get emotional they put her in the back of a police car with the little girl and you can see the dash cam footage of that little girl comforting her mom and saying, Mommy, it's going to be okay. And she asked her, is Daddy dead? And that just broke my heart. There's just so much trauma. That video just haunts me to see Diamond just absolutely wailing in the backseat of that police car. And her little baby girl trying to comfort her and being strong for her. Like, after just watching her father be shot to death. That video still haunts me today. 
It was one of the first one of those ones that got really viral because I think it was Diamond that was filming. Yeah. Yeah. I be- she might have been on Facebook Live. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right, which is a way to protect yourself to record what is happening. I mean, yeah. It didn't protect it didn't protect him, but it's very powerful to be able to record and say this is what happened because I think a lot of these situations before everybody had their phone in their hand the police would just say like oh yeah he shot first yeah he's closed and even the discourse on facebook facebook is trash and that was one of the first times i realized like oh my god so many of my friends are fucking racist oh my god but to see people saying oh well he must have done something to deserve that mm-hmm. cops don't just do that for no reason yeah. he must have been a Breonna criminal Taylor. To me, Brianna said about everyone. Yeah, no, you're completely right. You're completely right. But to me, it was like there was there was zero way you could even misinterpret anything about the Brianna Taylor situation to where it was like anything like she was sleeping in her fucking bed and she was unconscious. She was asleep. How are you going to? And it was a totally like mistaken house, even to go like what the fuck? And I'm I'm sorry, I shouldn't even but like. For people to then, I mean, yeah, and and you're right, it extends to all of these situations. It's not okay in any situation. But when you get to some point where you're like, well, logically, there's zero, there's zero defense of this. And yet people are still willing to defend it. People will mm-hmm. still sit there and be like, well, maybe you don't know it wasn't her fault. Oh, my God. People, real ass people out here mm-hmm. will, will sit there and smugly think they're being objective or something and think that shit. To see how people talked about Sandra Bland, that story also haunts me because there was video footage of her being pulled over and she had an attitude. She pushed back on the cop asking, well, why are you pulling me over? Why do I need to do this? Why do I need to do that? And it bruised the cop's ego and it costed her her life. And to see people saying, well, she needed she needs to learn how to respect the police. She'd still be alive if she just sort of respected the cop. And that seems to be the story that people stick to for black people that end up killed by police. Well, if you just if black people would just teach their kids to respect the police, why does disrespect equal death? Why does unarmed, non-combative disrespect equal death for black people sassing a cop shouldn't equal death when you're unarmed and you're not resisting you're not swinging you're not screaming at the cops if you assert that you know your rights if you say i I, oh I want to have my attorney here. I need my attorney present. I'm not answering any questions without my attorney present. It, that shouldn't equal your execution on the spot. And to know that there was, I don't know if this is true or not, but people were speculating that Sandra Bland was dead in her mugshot. Oh my God, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. she was in a cell by herself and somehow died and they tried to say that she committed suicide in her holding cell what come on yeah and then there's so much of this that people get away with that cops get away with i mean that's the reason why there's these huge pushes for legislation to increase the body cam footage there's no reason 
there's no reason to disagree with the idea that there should be more recording of what's happening unless you don't want to tell the truth. So, so many of those body cams um, mysteriously fail during yeah, the time some like shit awkward. goes down. Yeah. Yeah. It's disgusting. It's not a game. It's not a game. No. Calling police on black people. Do you remember that story of um, the Central Park Karen? Yeah, I do. I can't remember her name. I know her last name and the guy she called the cops on. I know they have the same last name, but I can't remember what their name was. But thank God he recorded that whole thing. Because to see her marching towards him, being the aggressor, being threatening towards him, and then pick up her phone, call the police, and completely change her voice. Mm -hmm. And suddenly her voice is you know, like two octaves higher and her voice is trembling and she's like, I'm in fear of my life and there's a black man here. I'm so scared. When two seconds before she was just screaming at him and threatening him, warning him, I'm going to call the police and tell them that you're trying to kill me. He was literally a bird watcher. Like the most wholesome thing you can be in a park. Exactly. Is a bird watcher. <laughs> <laughs> most wholesome use of park. Yeah. And most unwholesome use of park, carrying all over the place. Yeah, and I mean, she she got karma. It was swift for her. I believe she she had her dog taken away because she so her dog was unleashed in the park, which is why he said, "Hey, can you put your dog on a leash? Because this is a this is an an off leash area." And he was, you know, peacefully, wholesomely bird watching, <laughs> just wholesomely bird watching. <laughs> and you see the footage of her she grabs her little dog by the collar and her dog is like little so she grabs it by the collar and is walking upright but when she you know is walking upright the dog's feet lift up off the ground Mm -hmm. so she's essentially choking the dog out dragging the dog to talk to this guy and (laughs) A lot of people's focus of that video footage wasn't the fact that she th- basically threatened the life of a black man. It was the dog, which a win is a win, whatever. But the dog was taken away from her. Wow. Because that was dog abuse. Like It was pretty brutal. The dog was whimpering and choking and she did not give a single shit. And she rescued that dog, I think, just a couple weeks before that video and the shelter or whatever took the dog back. Mm. And she lost her job. Which, I mean, as she should. Well, you know, it, it is interesting how social accountability works when you can record everything. Like, I, I just think, to me, in all of my lifetime of trauma, it never doesn't help to get it as much of it recorded as possible. It's mm-hmm. always comforting to me to have it all recorded. It doesn't mean you have to use it. It doesn't mean you have to bust it out and leak it all over the place. And, you know, air it out in public. That's a totally different thing. Just to have it recorded because then you know what really happened. And the world can know what really happened if necessary. Mm-hmm. And that's powerful. And and you see that in a lot of these stories that are on record where there's a whole history. There's a whole lost history of stories that were not on record before we had um, such easy access to video recording. And it is. I mean, it's it's very traumatizing for people to face all those videos at once, like in your feed, as you're describing. But it's also 
I think of it, I think of a lot of stuff that's going on now as like a jar. I don't think I came up with this, but a metaphor of a jar with muck on the bottom and like caked in crud and dirt. And you got to clean the jar. So you dump water in there and you close the lid and you shake it up and then it kicks up all that crap. And then the water looks horrible, but otherwise there's no other way to get it up. Otherwise that, that muck was all under there the whole time anyway. And you just weren't dealing with it and it's just leaking into the water anyway. But if you do that big kick up, it's very dramatic and it's a lot to deal with at once, but it's the way to get the thing clean. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that in a way that's kind of what's been happening with like all this stuff getting aired. Like it's a hell of a lot for us, for like you to have to deal with. You're the generation that has to have that in your face, but it's like kicking up the muck from the jar. because it needs because it's been there the whole time and it's it needs to it needs to change Mm -hmm. I think out of all of the themes that of this situation that we've been dealing with for months this whole welfare check thing the police involvement this is arguably the worst out of all of it Mm -hmm. is the welfare checks on people I've been in fear of this happening to me for months i can attest to that behind the scenes this is not performative posturing this is a real fear and it's been a real concern and consideration during every step of this especially for you it's been a concern since early on Mm -hmm. i don't even i fear calling the police myself when i actually need help when i like when my ex-boyfriend was stalking me and coming to my house and lurking around and being a fucking weirdo i really didn't want to call police yeah but i knew man if this escalates if he tries to hurt me or my mom there needs to be something in place some kind of paper trail some kind of report that i tried to do something so the tables won't be turned into like oh it was self-defense or roxy was actually the aggressor because it's so easy when you're a black woman to be painted as the aggressor in your own abuse. So easy. Yeah. Yeah. And the cops are willing to, well, I guess it's not universal, but they're really hard to work with. There's definitely a patriarchal through line there. Yeah. I'll say I filed a police report against Ali at one point during this and the cops are painting the ass to deal with. Mm-hmm. They're very, they're, you know, they can be condescending. They can be patriarchal at, at best. And I don't know, like their stated thing is to protect and serve, but I don't know what their focus is. I, I don't know. My experience is that they are, they're not there to like facilitate what you're trying to get done ever. <laughs> ever. And they're, yeah, they're not, I don't know. I don't even know what to, I don't want to speak universally, but, but it really is a systemic thing with cops. And that's the thing. When people say all cops are bad, ACAB, they're not saying individual people who are cops have, they're not saying anything morally good or bad about those individual people. It's about the idea that cops as a system, cops as an institution is broken. Policing in the country is broken. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's true. And and people then get all afraid about, well, if we abolish the police, what would we do? Well, first of all, 
you could fund like uh don't call the police website that I mentioned at the top. Mm-hmm. You can fund all the kinds of things that are in there so that in an emergency situation, 80, 90% of the time, you can call a different group that is mm-hmm. well-funded instead of the police that could better, more appropriately handle the situation. You could also have police, but I I've, I think I said the last episode too, you could do a clean slate and try again with a whole new institution and set of people and set of rules and history because it's like the well is poisoned because mm-hmm. of the real history of what policing grew out of, which was racism. And it's still all there in 2019 in 20. I'm sure there's more recent cases. Things mm-hmm. get litigated and they take time to, to play out. So I'm sure there's still stuff happening just today. Are you tired of feeling unsafe online? Do you want to learn how to protect yourself from cyberbullying, doxing, and other forms of online harassment? Then look no further than Doxed the Podcast. Visit the website doxthepodcast.com to sign up for the Doxed free ebook full of helpful tips and resources for online safety. Plus, when you sign up, you'll receive the weekly newsletter with the latest updates on upcoming content. There are many ways to connect with Doxed, including Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Discord. Have a story to share or feedback to give? Use the contact form on the site to reach out or leave a voice message to be featured on the show. And for exclusive content, subscribe to the Doxed Supercast to gain access to the private podcast feed with member-only exclusives. Take control of your online safety and join the Doxed community today. Yeah because this stuff has not gotten fixed it's only more visible now which puts the pedal to the metal for the for the need to change it because we can only handle so much of this inundation too so i think that's a that's motivation to get this changed but i think the change has to be this this big systemic change it has nothing to do with any of the individual people who are cops it has everything to do with the whole way that cops work in this country yeah. is broken. I haven't had many interactions with police throughout my life, which I guess I'm lucky for that. I did have one really good interaction with a cop, and it was a cop that I didn't call, but I was living in Denver and had gotten in a little bit of a car accident. Not with another vehicle. I think I drove, accidentally drove up over a median, like turning too soon. And the median had punctured my oil pan. All my oil drained out of my car. My engine just seized up on the spot. And I was driving through kind of a shady area, I guess. I was new to that neighborhood. I had just moved to that neighborhood. So I didn't really, I don't know. I'm autistic. I was like, well, no one's murdering anyone. So it must be okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, I didn't feel like I was in danger, but it was nighttime and I, you know, was by myself and uh, my car had broken down in the street right in front of a 7-Eleven and I kind of like after a second kind of got like the zombie vibe, like, oh, this is the Walking Dead kind of vibe, like everyone's on something and just kind of like dragging their feet around like, ooh, maybe this isn't great. I got out of my car and pushed it across the street into the 7-Eleven parking lot and I didn't even hear this car coming but it was a police SUV parked behind me and helped me and 
helped me push my car into a parking spot and invited me into the cop car and drove me home and was really kind to me and make sure made sure that I got home safely. Nice. But um yeah, I mean the, the interactions like it should be like that with cops. You should feel safe and you should feel like they want you to be safe. But unfortunately, it doesn't always turn out like that for people, especially black people. Yeah. And it can be complicated because again, there can be individual cops who are who are trying to do the right thing by people, but the circumstance may even prevent them or just the training may prevent mm-hmm. them or lack of training. I guess now is the time to bring it up that I want to tell this story about the time that I was almost not technically 5150'd, but adjacent to that experience is something I went through because there was a cop that was pretty nice to me in the situation and it was a black cop. So (laughs) for for whatever that's worth. Um, But it was also a complicated situation where I did have a bad experience with the police in general. And it was not a, I was never in danger of my life or felt that way from the police, but they were also clearly very ill-equipped to deal with the situation. This was like, this was like 10 years ago, almost exactly, because I'm 31 now, and I had just turned 21. I was in college, and like I said, I, I had a terrible time in high school, but I was hoping college would be better, and it just really wasn't for me socially. I was great academically, but I had a lot of just, you know, I was an undiagnosed autistic person, so all all my other... my autistic cohort out there can understand maybe what I mean (laughs) just didn't get better like I was hoping it would in college because I hadn't figured out myself yet and then I was with somebody I thought I was going to marry really was in love with this person and it didn't work out because of totally external factors so that was like a hard as hell lesson to learn that you can love somebody to death and just it doesn't still doesn't work too bad and then I did a kind of I did a rebound with somebody that I thought was like a trusted friend but they ended up kind of using me and then discarding me in a really like quick one two punch so it was just like not a moment for me to be betrayed and then I got betrayed really bad and then I turned 21 like the same day that that all went down and So I never have really like, I've never had a huge alcohol problem before or since, but I turned 21. So I was like, what will I do? I'll go get a bunch of liquor and drink it all week. And like missed, oh, I really need to trigger warning this. So trigger warning, I'll give a timestamp. I'll I'll splice it in um, because this is, this is a whole like story about suicidal ideation and, uh, other stuff <laughs> uh, so if if you don't want to get real dark then get to this timestamp that i'll splice in 44 minutes and 41 seconds but yeah so i drank a lot that whole week and i and i had never really had issues like missing classes but i just skipped all my classes i was like weeping constantly i was very depressed and i was also at the time not for a long time since then but at the time i was a cutter And I was, it was a really unhealthy way to suppress my meltdowns, basically, because I was like externalizing them. So that was like a hugely unhealthy coping mechanism. 
And I was engaging in that. And I was uh, taking a bath in my dorm room. And I was just like, basically very drunk. (laughs) And uh, put myself in danger and went too far. And my roommate came home early from a class and found me and helped me get like stabilized. My roommate is somebody that's very important to me to this day, because she really was a good friend to me for a long time and saw me in like basically the worst shittiest moment of my entire life and still didn't judge at all and helped me get stabilized. And we had a talk about how she was going to drive me to the hospital the next day, but I just wanted to sleep in the meantime, because it was just a whole exhausting experience. And, uh, so in the, so I slept all through the morning in the afternoon no, it was not. It was like it was about probably 6 p.m. because it was kind of like before she came home from classes to take me to the hospital the next day. I had just been sleeping all day. Someone else had called the police to do a wellness check on me. And so they came to my dorm room door. They asked if I had thoughts of suicide or whatever the whatever the question was. And because I'm autistic and I always tell the truth about everything, I said yes, because I didn't want to lie. But I told my roommate that uh, I told them that I really wanted to go with my roommate to the hospital. I felt more comfortable doing that. And that had been my plan already before they showed up. So I really should have just told them no, because they would have gone away. But I told them, yeah, I'm struggling. So what did the cops do? They handcuffed me (laughs) and perp walked me out of my dorm. Wow. While my while the rest of my floor looked on. Oh no. <laughs> and because the whole thing had been like cutting based, it was on my arm and the handcuffs ripped that bad boy back open. So there was blood everywhere, which was totally thanks to the cops. <laughs> so that was very traumatizing for me. Um Herp walked me out of my dorm. And into a cop car, I was not, I was like, can I please like not take a cop car? My roommate's coming home in like 15 minutes. Nope. Wasn't a choice. Um, yeah, they took me to the ER. The nurses at the ER just acted like I was wasting their time, which was like really hurtful. (laughs) Um, and then they just kind of kept me there. They literally handcuffed me to a hospital bed. And it was several hours and it became like 2, 3 a.m. And at this point, and with the bright lights of the ER, I was just like overwhelmed, exhausted, still weepy. I started to just like totally dissociate because it was an extremely traumatizing whole experience. I had never had an encounter with the, mm, I had, that's not quite true, but I had never had like a really serious encounter with the police before that. And, um, So around like two, three in the morning after just hours of sitting there and there was cops that were like sitting there with me because they were, I don't know why they had like two cops assigned to just sit there with me for, for the whole time. And, uh, cause I guess they like deemed me a danger to myself, but I wasn't like, I wasn't like trying to get my hand free so I could like hurt myself or it wasn't like that. I told them, like, I told them I was like enough with my wits to want to go to the hospital. So, but they just, yeah. Um, So some lady came in and she was like a psych evaluator trying to ask me questions off a checklist. And I asked her what she thought about me. And she said 
I think you're trying to manipulate us into thinking you're okay so you can go home. Because I had basically just lost all emotion at that point and was either like dissociating or was I was just like totally distanced from my emotions because the whole perp walk thing had been extremely traumatizing. And then here I was just sitting in this hospital bed and yeah. And she called me manipulative. So I was just like, oh my God, I don't feel like I'm safe here whatsoever, you know? Um, and, uh, that was horrible. So at some point they, they, this is the part where I wasn't technically 5150, but it's interesting. So they came to me at some point then later in the night after she did her evaluation and they basically threatened me into voluntarily checking into a longer term uh, hold by saying, if you don't do this voluntarily, we're going to 5150 you. And if we 5150 you, you have to be there for 72 hours before you go. And so they basically said, you have to sign that this is voluntary and that you're willingly checking yourself into a hospital or else we're going to do that and you'll be missing for three days. And so I did voluntarily and they transferred me to a new place, like a new building through some ambulance. And then at the new building, it was now like 6 a.m. the next morning and someone there finally took me seriously when I said, I really just want to go home. I'm not trying to kill myself right now. Like this has been a horrifyingly traumatizing experience. This didn't help me at all. I wanted to go myself. Now at this point in my life, I understand 10 years later that I have PDA. So like it was Mm. a huge problem for me that they didn't let me choose when I was going to go in that they chose for me. I was of course going to shut down and like not receive help at that point. Like, yeah. Ugh. And I was not like a danger to myself in an, in a super urgent way. So I felt very not listened to. Finally, at the second place they transferred me to, the lady finally was like, okay, I hear you that you don't need to be there. And she was kind of miffed because she was like, you know, they do this all the time. They always send us these people and they bully you into volunteer voluntarily checking in, but they shouldn't. And I, and so that was interesting. So they let me go. And so I got a cab back to my dorm around 6 a.m., 6, 7 a.m., finally got some sleep. My parents came up after that. We had a lot of we had a lot of family bonding time. And my mom had to like talk the university into letting me stay because they were trying to basically say, like, I needed to take time off. And my mom, knowing me better than anyone else, was like, no, this is the best thing for this person. You need to let them stay in the university. You cannot. Like, yeah, knowing that if I went home, then I would basically have nothing because the only thing I the only thing I had was like going to school at that time. So Mm. good for my mom. She super advocated for me. I did stay in school. I got some, you know, got some eyes on me after that. And then about a month later, oh, there because there was this one cop who was one of the two cops that was like assigned to sit with me during the hospital bed stay part, which was like several hours So that whole time they were kind of chatting with me as well. And it was one white cop and one black cop. And uh, especially the black cop, I remember was just like, he was just like, he was trying, he was like, not, I don't know. He was like, clearly not, none of them were, they were clearly not well-trained for the situation, but he was like Mm -hmm. trying. And so I think he was the one driving me actually in the car too. And he said something like, he said something that was like an, like, like not helpful but like a cute effort to help if that makes sense like he was like you know there are things to live for 
<laughs> I was like, thank you, cop, you know, like um <laughs> the very seventh heaven. Yeah, trying my best to like give me a pep talk about living. And so that was nice. So then like a month later, I was walking home from campus and it was late at night and I had to walk across this like big empty parking lot. And this cop started like idling, pulling up and idling next to me. And at first I was like, the hell, some cop. But then it rolled down the window and it was that same guy. Um, And he was he was really nice. And he was like, oh, I'm so glad to see you. And I was like, I was worried about you. And he asked how I was. And I thought that was really nice of him. Um, Really nice of him. And like, I don't know, like not there was other cops in that situation who were like rougher. Like he wasn't the one that handcuffed me. That other guy that handcuffed me was like rough about it, which I was like, (laughs) like, why don't do that? But um, yeah, this guy was like pretty nice. And then, um, yeah. And then I just, I mean, I know it's like a very dark, deep story, but that was a huge turning point in my life because I had been pretty consistently just very, very deeply in the pits of depression for most of my life. And mm-hmm. it just kept getting worse. Like I I remember thinking around that time, I've never experienced happiness. Like <laughs> I don't remember being happy except for maybe when I was very, very young, but everything was just sadness and depression and weeping for, for like all high school and college. And then after that, I had less anxiety. Like I had been just this ball of like trauma and self-hatred and disordered eating. And then I had I kind of I kind of got some perspective from that event because I felt like I could have died, but I didn't. So everything after that was like a bonus round. And then things seemed like a way smaller deal all of a sudden. Cause I would just like, I got a tattoo right after that. Like the week after that, I went with my roommate and got my first tattoo, which is an ohm, which might seem <laughs> might seem I don't know what, I, okay, if it's appropriative, I had no idea about appropriation at the time, first of all, but also what it meant to me was an ohm is the sound of the universe. And it was, it was a huge perspective shift for me. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge thing of like, well, everything after this, at least it's, I, I haven't died. I didn't die. And I'm probably not going to die from this. And then the tattoo just kind of reminded me of that every time. And it was like the shovel I used to dig myself out of the pit that was the all-encompassing depression of the whole first bit of my life there. Like, it was a huge rock bottom. I felt like I really had nothing else going for me at all. I felt like it was time to be done. And then I was like, oh, it's like I got a second life. Like, I who, who even cares what I do at this point? Because, like who cares? Cause what I could have been dead. So who cares? And so I spent the whole next decade, like working on myself and just climbing my way up from that point. And I think that, I think that's really important perspective for who I am too, just because like, that's why I fight so fiercely to be allowed to believe what I believe and live my life the way that I know that I need to, because I know what doesn't work for me. And I also don't have the capacity to give a shit anymore because that was 10 years ago for me. I, you know, and then ever since then, it's like, I didn't die. I'm not dying. Fuck you. Um, But there it is. Could you like briefly explain what 
PDA is for people that are listening? Because you mentioned PDA a couple yeah. minutes ago, but I don't think a lot of people understand what that means. Yeah, it's pathological demand avoidance. And it's basically just where my brain, when somebody seems to be, when somebody's giving me a kind of command, there's a part of my brain that basically just shuts off and is like, like I could, I can turn it back on kind of manually and try to think through like, okay, is this person actually have a good point, even if it's not something I thought of. But a lot of times there's this like hair trigger mechanism where I'm just not, I'm just pathologically not going to listen to what you say. Not, it's not listen. That's not right. Not going to, um, I'm not just going to take orders. And I think it's because there is a very strong sense of justice with autism. There's a strong sense of like what's fair and right. And that goes into things like my personhood and my ability to choose for myself what my destiny is and what my, and also just to know what is best for me through through my whole life experience. Like I know that when people confidently tell me that they know what's best for me, that really isn't always true. That's mostly not true. And mostly mm -hmm. people are missing something about what I know I need. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so when I was younger, that's more like a gut feeling. Now it's based in like lived experience too, but it's definitely it's definitely an autistic thing to pathologically just have a just have kind of a gut reaction of like I'm going to do what I'm going to do, not what you're demanding I do. And so there are ways to like if you have someone in your life who has pathological demand avoidance, there's ways to there's ways to communicate that you need or want certain things to be done or that you think some somebody should make a certain choice that don't necessarily trigger that and it can often have to do with just like wording things in a way I think that respects consent often but there's a lot of stuff about like I don't know a lot of people in society are not are not familiar with just even wording things in ways that allow for consent and allow for like personal choice I don't know. Did I explain that well enough? I'm not sure if I explained it well. I think so. So it's like, I, I feel like it's one of those things where before you know you're autistic, it can be one of those things that that is a reason why people sometimes can think that you're like a monstrous person. Because if somebody doesn't know, like it, in, in, in allistic, like regular society, there's just expectations that kind of break down when somebody has a very very strong sense of justice and a sense of what they and like insists on certain boundaries mm -hmm. and I think the difference always has to be are you trying to control yourself or are you trying to control other people so PDA that doesn't ever mean that I should be allowed to control other people like just because I have some kind of like my autism can never be an excuse for me to control you, to tell you what to do, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's the line. But I think a lot of times in society or when people aren't like familiar with this idea. It's Is it really like a, a perceived demand feels like a threat to your personhood? Yeah. Yeah. 
it's it, I feel like it comes from somewhere that's like an intuition or a gut feeling. And I feel like, yeah, what I'm trying to express it, and I'm having trouble with the words, is that like you you're I I was born into a family, into a world that doesn't accommodate that, that mm-hmm. doesn't interact with you in that way. And so you're kind of constantly you're in a whole world that's telling you that you're wrong to be insisting on things like your own, I don't know, right to to like bodily autonomy. Or things Especially like if you're perceived as a woman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. People are constantly expecting you and not because they don't even like people that love you are constantly expecting you, but everyone is constantly expecting you to just kind of, you know, conform to certain things. And then everything in your, in my body is screaming. No, this is not like, I remember being so young, being a kid and thinking why is everything so negative? Why is everyone hurting all the time? This is not okay. This is to- this is like I didn't have the word toxic yet, but like there's something so deeply wrong and broken in how everybody's interacting with every each other. There's something that's so not that's so like abusive about how the world is acting toward itself. And then I would like try to vocalize that and then people would be like, "No." <laughs> No, it's mm. fine. You live, you're growing, you're so privileged. You're growing up in this wonderful place of cookie cutter houses in Northern Virginia, all the same. You know, it's aspirational to be there because everybody's super wealthy and has all the same house and nothing's wrong. No, like with distance, looking back on my childhood, yes, things were wrong. That was a super toxic place. And I think I mentioned to you this, You, uh, I think I mentioned this to you at some point before, there was a whole epidemic of like childhood and teen suicides in the place that I grew up. Mm. And, you know, probably some of my like depression and all that probably came from the place that I grew up because there was very strict kind of standards and ideas for what kids should grow up to be. And it was very limited. The kind of represent represented options were like you could be a tech person, you could be a like a lobbyist or a lawyer or a CIA person or a government person, or you could be like a gas station attendant, or you could be like a teacher or something. But that mm-hmm. was, you know, there was no like array of career choices. And I even went to a school that was like very um it was a magnet school, which means it was like a school where they expect you to be like tomorrow's leader of America. And there was oh, all this. I like, went to a magnet school before. Ooh. Oh God, small world. Yeah, 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 exactly. So like magnet school kids. And I do think a lot of kids that go to those, it's like gifted and talented kids. Well, no, a lot of us were autistic. <laughs> and then oh a lot of us, God. and then you burn out. And like, and I do think it was like that. And then the school had no like, Oh, I'm going on a whole tangent about my childhood. But the whole point is I knew, I knew when I was very, very, very young that something was deeply wrong with the world. And that was all in my gut somehow. And anytime I ever tried to voice it, I was gaslit to hell, not because people didn't love me around me. I was in a very loving family. Mm -hmm. I was totally surrounded by love, but people didn't even know. They were totally blind to that there was a problem. I was not. I was very aware there was a problem from the beginning. And that was a big reason why through my childhood, through high school, even into college, I was in these like pits of despair, like no child should have to be. 
because it was like, I was surrounded by all this, like, there was so much I was going to have to break through and overcome in order to even be okay. And that was true. I had to work for years and years and years to be okay. And now that I am, I'm very much okay, by the way, I am not in need of a wellness. I am great because I am strong (laughs) because Mm -hmm. I overcame years of digging myself out of a pit. And anyway, this ties back to the PDA thing because it was like all coming out of my gut. My gut was screaming. No, this is not okay. No, 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 no. This is not okay. And everybody around me is saying, no, it's okay. It's fine. No, it's not okay. And I think that's that same feeling of PDA. And sometimes that's like a trauma response, right? Like sometimes you Mm -hmm. and I will even have like conversations and you'll throw out like a great idea. And all my first initial thing, and we even talk through like, it's also partly because I'm somebody that really needs like all the context. So I can know, like, I can know everything. I have to know all the foundational information and then I kind of can incorporate new information into what I'm thinking. So it trips me up when I first get new information because of that. But another part of it is like this PDA, because I just have this kind of gut like, and, and that's kind of a trauma thing. Because there's a lot of my whole life has been like, I have to do that in order to fight for myself to get what I need. I know I need. And so even in situations where it's actually safe, uh, I can't always turn that off either. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah, but it's, but it's a very strong, it's not ignorable. It's not a feeling that I, I mean, I kind of can. I can respect authority. I don't have like, you know, but it's also, it's also interesting that in children, white children will get diagnosed with like PDA and black children will get diagnosed with oppositional violence disorder. Yeah. And those are the same thing, except for the kids are black versus white. And so it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's like, it's the same thing. It's not like, it's not like black kids are less respectful of authority. It's just like labeled differently in a racist way, which is horrible. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like this almost basically unignorable gut feeling. Like it destroys me every day that I have to ignore it if I do have to ignore it, which makes it really hard to just respect arbitrary authority, makes it really hard to work a regular job. Yeah. It really does. It 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 actually affects my physical health to be that stressed out when I spend every day having to ignore that feeling like my physical health gets affected. Um, and I think that's a common autistic experience. Do you have, do you think you have PDA or you experience anything like that? I don't know. The more I talk with you about your experience of PDA, the more I experience your PDA as your friend. Oh, no. oh, <laughs> like no. talk to you all the time. <laughs> Um, I look back at my like job history and I think it's a common high masking autistic experience to not hold jobs for very long, whether it's because of overwhelm or overstimulation or being burnt out or that autistic sense of justice, or maybe it's PDA too, but I've on autism talk, it's a common thing that autistic people high massing autistic people have this thing about like not holding jobs for very long not because of laziness or no will to work or being a bad employee but due to often like 
butting heads with holistic people in positions of authority. And that could be a PDA thing. When I look back at my work experience, which my longest work experience was within the salon industry. Um, or even when I worked office jobs, if I saw a clear path to a better, more efficient way of implementing something, I would do it that way. And if someone was like, you need to follow this procedure and do it this way, this really inefficient roundabout, why am I doing this? Why am I doing busy work kind of way? That would be an issue for me. Like, why am I wasting my time when I can just, why, why not go from A to Z? Like, why do I have to stop at D and F and J when I can just go yeah. from A to Z, you know? <laughs> and that would be a problem. And within like the salon industry, when I look back at my salon jobs, I would have all these really great experiences with clients where they would love me. They would love my work. Um, I had really high retention rates with clients that would come back to me or request me. But the issues that I had on the job were usually with my coworkers or with managers. Owners loved me. Hmm. I'm productive. Yeah. I, I earn well. If I'm earning well, the business is doing well because I'm making money for the owner. Owners love me. Coworkers, managers, supervisors hated me. Owners and clients loved me. And it's because if I see a better way of doing something, I'm going to do it that way. And if it makes the client happy and it makes money for the owner and people, if people at the top of the chain, top of the food chain, love what I'm doing, but everyone in the middle hates it, that usually ends up being bad for me. And every job I've had in a salon where I did really well, worked really hard, made really good money, had a lot of clients. It eventually would turn sour because my coworkers would find a way. They would find some kind of cut that they could really dig into to make my experience at that place miserable. And I would end up either walking out on the job or being fired for not being like a team player or whatever. Well, that whole that whole kind of social thing about workplaces, I think, is also commonly difficult for autistic people to navigate and like understand like workplace politics, because mm -hmm. there's a whole ass amount of people out here who really just engage socially with like a full awareness of like who's the top dog in the room and who's the person to suck up to. And it really is like fake. And that's just not, that's not how, that's not how our brains work. Yeah. <laughs> so I think sometimes you just really can miss, like it was important to suck up to that guy or whatever. <laughs> like, you yeah, straight up miss it. Like, but when don't you don't have hierarchical thinking, it it's lost on you. It's lost on you. I've experienced that too. Just being like totally unaware, like, oh, I should have been. Yeah. Like I've, um. I've said like true things to people that I should not have said true things to. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I have PDA. I don't feel like I do. I don't, I don't that's not, it's not like a pathological hmm. thing for me. And the more I learn about ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, the more I'm like, this is racism. 
Thank you for listening. Find additional content at doxtthepodcast.com.